the people of Israel had truly repented of their sins, which included holding on to foreign gods. And at the very time the, the nation had humbly gathered at Mizpah to corporately repent and confess of these things, the Philistines, seeing the vulnerability of Israel being in one place at one time, quickly assembled and went up against Israel. We read in 1 Samuel 7, verse 7. Samuel, as the high priest, offered a lamb as a burnt offering to the Lord for the sins of the people and interceded on their behalf. He cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord powerfully answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, we read in chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth To help everyone remember this merciful and gracious and powerful deliverance and help of the Lord in this what was surely a terrifying situation, Samuel set up a memorial stone and named it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. This implies that what God had been for his people, which was absolutely, incredibly faithful, fulfilling his promises to them, giving them his mercy, working in their lives, All that he had been for his people, he would be for his people. That was the message of this memorial stone. Samuel understood then that memories keep gratitude fresh and that gratitude keeps faith faithful. And it's not just memories of victory as in this instance that help us, even God's work in discipline and chastising his people builds humble faith in us as we are reminded of our need to depend always upon the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, which we are looking at this morning, some time had gone by since God delivered Israel from what looked like sure defeat there in 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you are able, would you please read, uh, stand as I read 1 Samuel chapter 8 from the English Standard Version. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. 
Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and the vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice. And make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Another incredible chapter. There are lots of important implications here. Right from the outset, we need to make something very clear. Down through church history, many people have been so focused on the warnings about what will happen if Israel is ruled by a king that they miss the whole point of the passage. Yes, the warnings are right here as they are in other places of the Old Testament. But we need to see beyond that particular question. And recognize the underlying issues behind their demand for a king. And if we turn this into a debate for our own particular brand of political ideology, 
which is something Americans get very carried away with, all of us, because it's so precious to us, then we're doing nothing more than trying to manipulate Scripture to say something that it's really not saying here. And we should be doing exactly, we would be doing exactly what the Israelites are doing, which is not wanting to deal with the real idols of the heart. In other words, we need to be primarily concerned about this morning as we read and study this chapter what God is saying through his word here about the human heart, including our, our, our own hearts, not about forms of government, which we will mention and deal with, but we must make this clear at the outset. Coveting substitutes for God is the problem. And in the first eight verses, let's see what's going on. It's an interesting situation. Samuel is getting old. And he's installing his own sons as judges over Israel. The people see the writing on the wall. This just looks like the time Eli let his two sons be our priests. No one in his right mind wants two disreputable men ruling over them. Because we see right here, the text says that Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So what are they thinking? What is the tone? What is the atmosphere? They're saying, enough of this. Let's change the system. We need a king. This sentiment is so strong and so across the board that we read in verse 1 that all the elders of Israel demanded that Samuel appoint a king. Then they add a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel, we read, immediately was not pleased with their demand. And immediately, to his credit, what did he do? He prayed to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Samuel. Samuel, his prophet, his judge, and his priest. And we see that in verses 7 and 8. In no uncertain terms, the Lord said, it wasn't Samuel who was really being rejected here. It was the Lord himself whom the people were rejecting from being king over them. 
Now, I'm sure everyone realizes this, but it must be emphasized because it's what Scripture emphasizes. This was the recurring problem of Israel all throughout their history. That they rejected their God, the only true God, to really rule over them. And we see this repeated in cycles through the early priesthood, through the period of judges. And remember, Samuel is really the last true judge as we are in this transition period now because we know what's coming, kings. This was the problem of Israel's heart. And can we already say, you know where this is going, our hearts as well, no matter what form of government there was. We think we have the best. And there's some good reasons for believing that. But I think we need to listen again and hear what one of the founding fathers said who helped form our incredible experiment. And he said that the form of government that we have and enjoy will not work unless the people are virtuous. And we're starting to experience some of the consequences already, are we not? And by virtue, those guys meant not just nice, genuine, sincere people. They meant people who knew what self-control was because they lived in the authority of the God that they knew was there. Even the deist among these guys saw the benefits of knowing that there is a higher being and authority. But the Christian men in that group understood this. They understood the sinful condition of the hearts of mankind. And they knew that no matter what form of government there was, that there would be abuses and sin either held back and constrained or let loose and going crazy in tyranny Etc., etc., etc. But you can have different kinds of tyranny. What would ours look like? It's simple, folks the tyranny of the majority. And it's happening. Keep this in mind as we go through. That's why we're not going to let the political discussion to argue about which system is better even be broached here. Because God has demonstrated down through history that while there are incredible blessings and advances with the one that we are currently trying to hold on to, that human hearts don't change unless God changes them. So that's the setting. 
And we need to really understand that as we see what, this, what happens here in this chapter. Coveting substitutes for God. And we're going to see some more implications of this as we go on today. What do we learn from God's own evaluation of his people here? But they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. What do we learn from God's own evaluation? Well, the most obvious one is that the people didn't just want some authority over them instead of Samuel and his sons. By the way, you can still see how much they did value Samuel. It's, it's still there somewhat. They didn't just want some authority over them other than judges or judges, judge, a judge or judges. They wanted a gloriously powerful man who would really be a substitute for God. Someone's called this creative idolatry. Samuel, you appoint for us a king who will be like all the kings around us, one whom we can serve and trust and depend on. And you notice how the text describes in this chapter this part, and who will protect us and do what? Bring us glory. Dale Ralph Davis says that what we have here is simply the old idolatry with a new twist. The people wanted a king like all the nations, like the pagan kings, which means they really wanted to live not under God's authority, but only by their authority, their own authority, like the pagans around them lived. That's quite an indictment for the people who call Jehovah their God. They did not want to be distinctly God's own people because that would mean that they would stand out in the world does any of this sound familiar to the struggles of Christians in our day there's no difference as far as the heart issues go was the demand for a king wrong in and of itself You know, there's a lot of people, this is a big debate, there's a lot of people who say, yeah, it's wrong. Because look at all these warnings, we see what's happened. And you know what some very wise people are starting to do right now? They're starting to go, yeah, 
Well, how many of those things that we're going to list, that are listed here, we're going to talk about are already happening in a representative form of government because the majority says so or because somebody's abusing their power who's on top? These are tough questions, and we need to be willing to ask them. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20 specifically, Moses wrote that the time would come when Israel would want a king. And that would be permitted. And that's about all we can say about this. Permitted. Provided the people knew their king, and here's the key, should not be like the kings of the nations around them. How? How was he supposed to be different? Well, there's, a, there's almost a list there in Deuteronomy. He must be chosen by God. Hmm. An Israelite, not a foreigner. He must, this is really very important, he must learn, know, and operate under the authority of God's own law with a humble heart. In fact, he was supposed to write out his own copy of it. That's what he was supposed to be occupied with. He must not do many of the things other kings do that would tear his heart away from God. That's the underlying issue. It's right there. Like what? Like building up a personal military operation. It's termed in Deuteronomy as Don't let the king have all these horses for himself. Because then what would happen? And we see it happen. What? We know this. I'm the king. Look at all my horses. Wow. I've got a military operation in my control. I can do what I want. I don't need to go ask God about what I should do or whether I should, if we're t- or whatever the situation was, I can do it because I've got the resources. How many times has that happened in history? That's the law there, you see that. Other things that would tear the king's heart away from God. Acquiring multiple wives. A lot of people think polygamy is not really dealt with in scripture it is it's just ignored and the consequences God lets happen to try to get across his point what else acquiring excessive wealth all those things are descriptions of ways that men's hearts are torn away from their love of the only true God because they're, what, making themselves gods. So the request itself was not necessarily wrong for a king, but the motive for the request was wrong. 
faced with Samuel's old age and the passing of the baton to his two disreputable sons to be judges over them, and we can't even get really into that. That's all the info we have. Israel should have cried out to the Lord for his help and deliverance and provision. Did they? No. That's the problem. But without humbly going to the Lord in prayer, they instead decided their help would come from a change in their form of government. It's not monarchy, but trust in monarchy that's the problem here. We can get some wise insights just from from what we've even looked at so far. We have a tendency to assess our problems mechanically rather than spiritually. Our first impulse is to assume there is something wrong with the technique. This church has a lot of engineers in it. You guys agree? It's a man's kind of first deal. Hey, what's wrong? I can fix it. The need is for adjustment, not repentance. There's something wrong in the system that needs doctoring. How easy for even energetic evangelicals to look for a new gimmick rather than cry out for a new heart. By the way, these insights are from a pastor theologian who's getting older himself and has seen it happen over and over and over again. Secondly, instead of looking to God for help, we are more interested in prescribing what form God's help must take. Our attention is not on God's deliverance in our troubles, but on specifying the method by which he must bring that deliverance. Therefore, we trust what? The method. We are not content with seeking a saving God, but desire to direct how and when he will save. It's almost like these four things are getting worse and worse. Number three, God will sometimes give us a request to teach us some hard lessons. God's granting our request may not be a sign of his favor, but of our obstinacy. Boy, that'll rattle some cages. Rattles mine. How about yours? Sometimes God's greatest kindness is in not answering our prayers exactly as we desire. Fourth, in light of the current situation that we see here, and by the way, there's, there's more threats militarily on the horizon added to Samuel's age and his two disreputable sons, so there's danger. Israel's request for a king was perfectly rational. Yet God viewed it as rejecting his kingship. 
our proposals and solutions then can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and utterly godless. That's hard to swallow. But it's true. Who was displeased about this idea in this chapter? One person that we know of. Samuel. And we've been impressed with his heart before his God since the day he was born Okay, the facts are spelled out in verses 9 through 18. In verse 9, God tells Samuel what to do. Listen to the request that's being made here, but warn the people what having a king will be like. In other words, what it's going to cost them. How hard do you think it was for Samuel to do this? I think it was about as hard as it was for Jeremiah, for Isaiah... And uh, the list is pretty long of men who were called to deliver hard messages, and yet they did. So in verses 10 through 18, Samuel does just that. And this is not a list of the extreme abuses of monarchy, but rather just the normal practices of monarchy, which could obviously then be done abusively or become abusive, and many times were, but not necessarily. Maybe that's why we know a list of really bad kings, if you study history, and really good kings, because the good kings looked at their position of authority as what? A responsibility before God, usually, for the benefit of everybody there, somehow, some way. So they stand out, maybe because they're so few. But we have a summary. Six times we read what the king will do. It says he will take. And each time the people hear what precious possessions they may have to part with. And the list is right there. Sons, daughters, lands, produce, slaves and livestock, and freedom. The last one's freedom. So, the majority can be very, very wrong. The Israelites refused to obey. Verses 19 through 22. We could rightfully say that there is no wisdom among these ranks. Committed to their foolishness, yes. Wise, no. Have you in your lifetime heard a cry to change the system? Everybody in here that's 55 or over has heard it. 
Have you seen it in action? See friends that got killed in it because of it? Yeah, this is serious. There's something wrong. Let's just burn everything down and change the system. What do you want to change it to? I don't know. But anything would be better than this. I can't tell you how many times I heard that in college. Hearts before God is what we need to pay attention to. Because we made a God out of some political system. It's important. We've seen the the blessings and the benefits, but the system cannot be made out to be a God, our God. We're answerable to the one in authority over all the systems. One thing we're constantly bombarded with in our culture, and here's another implication, is the premium always put on knowledge and information as the key ingredients to motivate change and empowerment. And this literally, we swim in this. If people just know and are informed, that's enough for rational people to make decisions that are wise, and they should and will respond that way in solving their problems. So we just need to give everybody the facts, and it'll work out. How's it working? I was a teacher for 13 years. We got this every workshop that I ever slept, I mean went to. (laughs) You know, it should be obvious that when so-called experts are constantly paraded through our informational radar and ask about all the social and moral problems that are facing us in our day, and what should be done about them, that knowing something will destroy you does not mean people will leave it alone. It may help, but it is not God. Knowledge and information are not God. I read one author that said there's something called inherent stupidity that is a common factor in human beings. We see it demonstrated often, do we not? Education is obviously important. And it does observe and clarify and research. And we all need it. But it does not have the power to transform a person's heart.
Here in our text today, we see that Israel hears all the facts, all the information, and they're from God. Objective about what this particular form of government will do. But still, these people do not submit to it. They don't even listen to it. Immediately, they say, and notice how the text says this, and they said, no. You ever had a conversation like that? Yes, we all have. You know the look. No. 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 And you can't get through their what? We have all these great terms. Thick skull, other more descriptive and colorful ones. God gives his people instructions here in our text, but they are not teachable. That's another way to say their hearts are not open to God and his word. Is yours? Our two responses, if we can get it that down to that many, to all this, should be something like this. Our first one, each one of us should cry out to our Lord in prayer for a soft heart, for a teachable spirit, and for preservation from the arrogance of our own foolishness and, yes, stupidity. Each of us needs to be praying that every day because these (laughs) are not easily suppressed, are they? We should cry out to God in prayer for a soft heart and a teachable spirit and preservation from the arrogance of our own foolishness and stupidity. This is reflected many places. There's one proverb that is especially clear. Proverbs 12:15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Second response to this passage today, each one of us should be aware of and recognize that since God will sometimes give us our request as part of his discipline and chastisement and learning things the hard way, if we know that, and we do, some of us just don't want to admit it, we should not be too upset if he does not give us what we wanted. And some of us get really upset when he doesn't give us what we want. Why? Because we realize that God, in his kindness, may be showing us his mercy. Since he knows what our requests will cost us. In other words, his refusals are not showing indifference 
but rather His mercy. God is not answering your prayer. It's not because He is indifferent. It's not because He is asleep at the wheel. It's not because He doesn't care. We may not know ever the reason why not, but you and I have to stand on what we do know is true about God. That he's the only one that sees all. He's the only one that knows all. He is good. He is kind. He is faithful. And as a part of his redemptive plan, he uses all things to accomplish that plan. And he doesn't make mistakes. We do not have to go on television and try to apologize for God not stopping this or that or letting this or that happen either in our own lives or anybody else's. Of course, then is when you hear people say, no. Because they don't, they they know that it's a slippery slope there. If you admit there is a God and he has manifested himself in the person of Christ, uh, sent that son into this world, and to do, if, if we even admit that, then we're on a slippery slope to having to really deal with him. And most people do not want to deal with him at all. So keep him out here and just point your finger and blame him for everything. Do you see how that works? We are the Christians who are supposed to know this, that if he does not answer our prayer, then we need to get on our face and go, God, what am I not seeing about you so I can pray according to your will? That should be our first desire anyway. We want it so bad, but maybe he knows that it would absolutely crush you, that it would tear your heart away from him. We do not know all that. He does. We must leave it there. His refusals are not showing indifference, but rather mercy. He knows how best to deal with our own particular sins and issues. Let's pray. Oh God, we humbly confess as we come to you today our lack of trust that's manifested in us continuing to lift up the things of this world to substitute for you, things that will give us what we think we want and really need. And we know that you're working these things out, but before you we must stand with an open heart and confess our sin, our our proneness to wander, all these things that people down through the ages who are your people have noticed is true about their own hearts as you make us more and more like Christ. This battle is huge. We pray that you will, that you will change us from the inside out, which you promised to do as being in the body of Christ with your spirit indwelling us. And we pray for wisdom to be able to see what's behind 
the things that so bother us and should bother us in the world that we live in, in our own society and culture, the things that rip our hearts out because it's just wrong. But God, we know if we're hoping only in this world that we'll stay right there and we won't be able to ever get beyond it. To trust you with with your plan and our little part in it. To be faithful to you in the little things, in the day-to-day things. With our family, with our friends, with our church family. With the burden for those we work with and know and live next door to that do not know you so that we may be asked, what's the reason for your hope? So that we can proclaim the gospel as you prepare hearts for your kingdom. Thank you for the privilege of being able to learn these things together as the body of Christ. Thank you that in so many ways we're all in the same boat. Thank you that your son has set us free to be able to know you, to be able to grow in you. And yet the battle here is still great. Make us alert what's really important and what's not. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Who are those guys? Uh, Ken's talk, the guy that Ken's talking to we've met before. Yeah, he's been here. Hey, how are you? Hey. Did you did you meet that guy in the back? I've seen him. You want to start going last I don't know if I met him.
That was a good sermon, Bobby.